Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 24th, 2022. Uh, I hope you're all doing well. You're all at work and you're probably loving your work or you may not be loving your work. The issue of love and work has come up many times in the show before. Did a great show a couple of years ago with the radical journalist Sarah Jaffe. Um, a book called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted and Alone. It's a left-wing take on 21st century capitalist work. She quotes the Italian feminist writer um, Silvia Federici, uh, who, who, who argued we want to call work what is work so that eventually we might discover what is love. So work and love don't necessarily go together. Lots of other people we've had on the show agree with this. James Sussman, the anthropologist, has a book out called Work. He was on the show a couple of years ago as well, suggesting that uh, we've lost our love for work because of the nature of our exploitative economy. Um, if we fast forward to today's Silicon Valley economics, we had the UC Berkeley sociologist Caroline Chen on the show recently, talking about given the spiritual vacuum in society, we treat our work as if it is love or religion. She has a really intriguing new book out, Work, Pray, Code, When works become when Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. She's not really just writing about Silicon Valley. She's also writing about work generally. We are looking in work, she argues, for stuff that we're missing in the rest of our lives. Certainly, this relationship between work and love has gone out of balance. We had a, another writer, Annie Auerbach, on the show talking about how our work-life balance has fallen out of sync. She has a new book out, Flex, Reinventing Work for a Smarter, Happier Life, suggesting that we can perhaps love our work. My guest today on the show believes that we can love work. He has a new book out, Marcus Buckingham. It's called love and work. And Marcus is joining us from Southern California, somewhere uh, between San Diego and Los Angeles. Marcus, welcome. Thank you. How are you this morning, Andrew? I'm as orange as you are for people watching. We're, we're sharing our color scheme, Marcus. Um, so this love and work thing, uh, you're not on the left. You're more, uh, I guess, in corporate America, although I'm assuming politically you're probably relatively progressive. But I assume you disagree with uh, journalists like um, uh, Sarah Jaffe, who believe that love won't, uh, that not love, work won't love you back. What, what, what's your argument in, in this new book, uh, Love and Work? Well, it's not really an argument. I'm a I'm a psychometrician by training. I'm not a journalist. I'm a researcher. So for the last 25 years, I've spent most of my career interviewing people that are really, really good at what they do. Uh, hotel housekeepers, boron, miners, salespeople, dentists, doctors, lawyers, leaders, um, mostly to try to figure out ways to measure their strengths, their talents, their level of engagement, things that are really important to people, but that you can't count. But you can, if you're careful, you can measure those sorts of things. So that's really what my 
focus has been. And when you interview people that are really, really good at what they do, and you just ask open-ended questions, and then you shut up and listen, um, excellence and love are always seen in each other's company. Loveless excellence is an oxymoron. That doesn't mean that the the Karen Jaffe's wrong that we we that we've designed loveless work. I mean, there's an awful lot of companies that have designed really boring, exploitative, loveless work. But if you study pathology, if you study what's wrong with something, you don't really get a good good sense of what right looks like. If you study divorce, you don't learn anything about marriage. You study depression, you don't learn anything about joy. If you study people that are really unhappy at work, you'll find a lot of people doing loveless work and really boring jobs. But if you study people that are really, really good at what they do, even in jobs like, say, hotel housekeeping, where you would go, gosh, that must be just a terrible job. I bet people would just want to get out of it. When you actually interview people that are really, really good at it, it's amazing. There's, so, there's so, love in what they do. So how do you define being good? Because perhaps people love their work when they think they're really good at it. There aren't that many metrics for determining. So if you're interviewing people, do they tell you they're really good at their work or they tell you they're really bad and you're seeing a correlation between loving their work and thinking they're actually good at it? Well, there's two ways to answer that question. So the first is when we were doing this research, you would go into a company and say, say you go into Walt Disney World and you go, you've got 8,000 housekeepers. Give us 100 that you really want to hire more like and 100 that are average. So regardless of what um, metrics they may use, I don't know how many lost work days there were or accidents in the job of those different study groups versus the contrast groups. But if you go into a company and say, give me 100 people that you really want to hire more like in this job. These weren't people who self-identified as good. These were people at the company went, we want to hire a lot more like them, which is um, a it's a common sense way of saying this is our, st our study group. There may be other metrics one could use. But each time that we were studying excellence, that was the first question asking of the asked of the company. Let's go study people that you want to hire more like. And when you interview those people and you just ask these open ended questions about what do they do and how do they feel about what they do and describe a good day at work, describe a good hour at work. When was the last time an hour at work flew by? All those sorts of questions. You find a lot of emotion, a lot of psychological emotion in the work that people are doing. Things people that you might not get a kick out of, I might not get a kick out of, Carolyn Jaffe might not get a kick out of, but people doing a particular job who get a kick out of certain parts of that job. By the way, not all of it, there's absolutely no data at all, Andrew, that says that people who are really good at what they do love all that they do. There's no data on that at all. So that whole kind of cliche about find what you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life again, there's no data on that at all. But what we do see quantitatively again and again and again, if you ask people, do you love your work and feel like you're good at it? What you, what you find is that there's a 20% threshold. The Mayo Clinic research actually sort of backs this up as well, that doctors and nurses who don't burn up or burn out find activities that they love in 20% of the activities in a day. Different activities, every nurse is different, every doctor is different. So it's not as if they love the same stuff, but 20% of their activities are things that they love. And if you get below the threshold, 19, 18, 17, 16, 15, you basically end up in Caroline's world of like loveless work um, the, the, there's almost a perfect linear relationship. Right. So I, I think what you're saying, Marcus, is of great significance in, in, a, in a culture where, as you say, and, and you understand this probably better than I do, we're all told that we're supposed to love our work. We're all told that we can be anything. You and I both know that's not the case. And yeah. people are often being sold stuff that they can't do. What you're suggesting then is if you're good at what you do, whether it's 
cleaning up a, a hospital bedpan or running a, a Fortune 500 company, you're actually going to in, enjoy it. So what you're Other saying is, is that skills... Sorry, sorry. All right, so let, me, let me just finish. What you're saying is, is that competence leads to affection. No, I'm saying affection leads to competence. That there are every single well, activity. How do you get those? How, how do you determine which way round those goes? Well, yeah. So time one to time two. Do we know that uh, that behavior? Where's the ABC? A, uh, attitude drives behavior, drives competency, or competency drives behavior, drives attitude. It's from all our data, at least. It would seem as though there is a feedback loop. But in terms of the correlation coefficients of attitude of how you feel about your job and then your performance subsequent to that job as rated by your manager, not by you, the, the correlations A to B to C are four times stronger than C to B to A. I'm not suggesting that the correlations from C to B to A aren't positive. They are. So you do feel more affection for things that you are competent at. But when you actually run the data, there's there's a four times stronger relationships between attitude expressed at time one to behavior to competency at time two. So it does seem as though there are certain things that we lean into for no good reason other than the clash of our chromosomes, that we've got these weird, unique uh, synaptic connections in our brain that lead you to love some things. And they're not the same as what I love, regardless of the fact that we're same gender and roughly the same probably age and race. Um, you're drawn to certain things that I'm not. You love certain things that I don't. And what you lean into from the age of like eight or nine years old, we can see some of these differences in what people are drawn to and what they love and what they get a kick out of. That leads to certain behaviors. For example, it leads to more repetition. It leads to more practice. It leads to a brain cocktail in your brain that dysregulates your neocortex and opens you up to, to right. more information. Marcus, input, is there, is there, is there any coincidence that, that we live in a culture where everyone seems to be looking for both personal love and love at work? Are they connected? This, this thirst, this appetite we all seem to have to either find a partner we love or work we love, or simultaneously, or both. I mean, we're told in pre-modern times that emotionally people didn't love one another. I assume the same was true with work. When peasants went out in the fields, they weren't told that they should love their work. Well, perhaps not. And certainly, we live in a world in which, I can't remember the name of the Italian journalist that you quoted at me at the beginning. Federici, uh, uh, Silvia Federici. Yeah. Silvia Federici. She's definitely onto something there because she talks about communizing, making things conform. Yeah. We've love actually, is, and to quote her, love is the great anti-individuality. It's the great communizer. Well, work, she said that. Is that right? Work is the great anti-individuality. Like she's absolutely spot on around that. The, the defining characteristic of human beings is their variation, their range, their variety. Biology loves variety. That was always true of human beings. Uh, the earliest human art we've ever found in way prehistoric times is 50,000 years old, and it's a picture not of a hand or a god. It's a picture of a team where the person who drew it drew different individual animal characteristics to the members of the team to denote various personality quirks that the team had. So way back 50,000 years, somebody saw the difference of the people around the campfire clearly enough to paint it on a wall. One had the trunk of an elephant. One had the wile of a crocodile. Like it was it's so cool to see how somebody individualized 50,000 years ago. And, and we figured out how to use the differences between people by putting them on teams. And that's what a team is for. But uh, Federici's right. Most companies actually, even though they say things like people are our greatest asset, they don't like the fact that people are different. We have 20 emergency room nurses 
we are going to treat them as though they're the same. And we're going to try to make them the same. In fact, we'll measure them against competency models and, and rate them as though they're the same. And we'll tell them to get better, they ought to be more like the model. So she's right. Most work, when you really just peel the onion, even just a little bit, most work says your uniqueness is an, is an impediment to you getting the job done. And that's, for most of us, why work is so destructive and so alienating. And this is the core paradox at the heart of perhaps 21st century capitalism or work-life balance, is on the one hand, we're told to be individuals, because that's supposed to be the defining quality of who we are and what will make us happy. And on the other hand, you're suggesting that at work, individuality is not rewarded. It can be punished because it's problematic, at least in terms of the contemporary corporation. Yes. And what we've done is we've made a mistake. We've made a fundamental error in thinking that because there are some things we do need to standardize in a job, let's take nursing. There is a standard set of steps that you've got to follow in order to give a painless and safe injection. Just like if you're checking a guest into a hotel, there is a standard way in which you can give the right guest the right room. That's a minimum requirement. Every job has, even in Silicon Valley, there are minimum requirements for coding proficiency in Python or CSS or whatever you're coding in. There's minimum proficiency. What we've mistaken is minimum proficiency for maximum expectation. So we've then said, well, if you're going to give a a minimum requirement to a nurse, then that's what we're going to define the job as. When in fact, the ways in which a particular nurse might help a patient feel better, share their pain, offer care is unique and idiosyncratic. But a nurse is very, I mean, a nurse can manifest the, I mean, that's a particularly human, it's particularly human work. Whereas I don't know how a programmer who's sitting in a cubicle in some massive company programming Python, um, I don't see how they can manifest their love of other human beings. Well, that's only because you don't know them. If you were to sit down with a programmer and ask the ones that the company said, I want to hire more like these 25 over here, and you just ask them about what they get a kick out of when they code, what patterns did they see? Do they like writing the code or finding the breaks within the code? Which is the particular bit of the job that lights you up? The first job I studied was housekeepers. And boy, if there's a job where you think there's nothing to love in that job, it would be housekeeping. And yet they, one of them will say that I'll arrange the toys in a little scene. So the kids come back from the theme parks and one day Mickey's got his arm on the remote control and Minnie's arms on the French fry container so that the kids think they were on the bed all day watching TV. And then another one will say, I lie on the toilet and I, I, I rather I sit in the toilet. I, I lie on the bed and turn on the ceiling fan. And I asked at the time, like, why would you do that? And she's like, well, that's the very first thing a guest does after a long day in the theme parks. You flop down on the bed and turn on the ceiling fan. I mean, this is very reassuring, um, uh, this, Marcus, because we want people to enjoy work which doesn't seem, or, or love their work, which doesn't seem very attractive. But of course, we live in the age of what journalists are calling the great resignation. I'm always a bit dubious. You can find all sorts of articles around the internet. Found this one just before we talked. Uh, the great resignation leads to a greater revelation. Money can't buy you love. Back to work and love. What's going on right now, Marcus, in May 2022? Are we, have we fallen out of love with work? Is there a real crisis? Um, or is this just business as usual in post-COVID uh, America? Well, the short answer to that question is that two things are really happening. I mean, 
I run this institute, so we're, we're looking at the sentiment of workers all the time, as well as their actual job movements. And a lot of people, 21 million people did quit their jobs last year, which is a, a dramatic rise from the year before. Whether that's a complete reappraisal of what work is for us, or whether that's just that there was pent up demand from not moving in 2020 remains to be seen. But what we do see with things like unionization at Activision Blizzard, at Apple, at Starbucks, at companies where previously people were sort of fine to be trucking along with their job is that it, for the last two years, we've been grown-ups. Be, most of us have had the opportunity to decide our own schedule, our own time. We've figured out how to have self-mastery in a week and how to, I mean, some of us got really lonely, no question, but we did actually get more choice about how we spend our days. So now we're coming out of this and in some real ways, we are changed. We are changed. But we unionization, want... we've done a number of shows actually on unions and the role of unions and the need for unions. I mean, there's no incompatibility between loving your work and joining a union. In fact, you're more likely to love your work if you join a union, aren't you? Well, not necessarily. I haven't seen data which would show that over time. Um, yeah, if, if management is intent on not seeing you as an individual in just putting you into a clump of people and not allowing you to express yourself, not really being interested, hey, you're in an Amazon warehouse. We don't see you as people. You're just transactional materials. You're, it's the Henry Fordism of why is it whenever I want a pair of hands, I get a human being as well. If your company thinks that way, then absolutely join a union, start a union so that you can at least be seen by management. Um, having said that, the challenge with unions sometimes is it's collective bargaining. So it means that your uniqueness, I mean, there is on some level a deep incompatibility if you're not careful, if you're not careful. But it's the only way you have any muscle. I mean, it's all very well talking about uniqueness, but if yeah. you're... If you're an Uber driver or if you're working at a hotel or if you're certainly on an Amazon warehouse, the only way you have any muscle is by joining a union. Well, yes. The only other way you have muscle is you have a labor market like the one we have right now with 3.6% unemployment. And given the demographic shape of the U.S. workforce, it's going to stay that way for at least five years. Yeah, but Jeff Bezos might be watching this. I'm sure he's probably busy doing other things. But if he was, he might say, well, I'm, I'm going to still pay you $3 an hour or $5 an hour, whatever you can get away with to do really nasty work, because you should love your work like those housekeepers that Marcus studied. Well, but those things aren't antithetical. So that's not one or the other. It's it's if you find love in what you do, it leads to excellent performance. And then we need to have an economic calculation about how much your job is worth. If you have like right now, we have a massive nursing shortage in the US. Why? Because everyone quits because this job, the day-to-day -day reality of what it is to be a nurse, where you've got nurse supervisor to nurse ratios of one to 60. So these 60 nurses, they're not seen by anybody. There's no, nobody can pay attention to you when you're one of 60. And so it, it doesn't make much financial sense for a hospital to have a ratio of one to 60, which creates nurses who are disengaged and alienated and quit. And then you've got a billion dollar building with no nurses to fill it with. That's the state of the NHS in the UK. It's the state of a lot of um, hospital systems here in the US, in which case for the nurses, of course, yeah, join a union to your point, because then you've got a louder voice. But funnily enough, from the company standpoint, you'd be like, guys, you've you've messed this up. You have not paid attention to individuals. You've designed spans of control that are basically inhuman. And then you wonder why people quit and need to form a union to have a voice. You've almost created that situation for yourself. In the context of that, can we still find love in what we do? Yeah, because as individuals, 
Every single day, we, we have to move through a day and derive some nourishment from that day. If you're spending 40 hours a week at work and you're deriving no nourishment from that work, you're just getting the money so you can go home and buy stuff for people you love, then you are damaged. You're but psychologically is it a question of, Marcus, is it a question of attitude or the work itself? We had uh, Lise Vesterland on the show uh, recently. She, she and three other kind of upper class white, women in, in in powerful academic positions wrote a book called The No Club, putting a stop to women's dead-end work, basically arguing that academic departments in America discriminated against women. Women are more likely to volunteer to help, and therefore they don't get the, the really, uh, using this word carefully, sexy work. They're not doing the really cool stuff because they're volunteering too much. I personally thought what she was saying was kind of absurd uh, because it's part of a culture of everyone demanding, and, and, it, and it comes back to your thesis, everyone demanding that work must make you happy. When in fact, I would have thought volunteering in an academic department or volunteering in your company is actually a good thing. Why shouldn't women want to do it? It actually reflects better on them than on men. And it's probably in the long run more likely to make them happy at work if they're volunteering and helping others. Well, that's why we need data. Like everyone can have an opinion, but I've, I've just come out of the field of a 27,000 person study here in the US looking at discrimination and whether or not you love your work and you're good at it and sliced it by gender. And although there is difference by race and there is difference by LGBTQ status, there's no difference by gender. Women don't feel more discriminated against at work than men, according to the women, nor do they necessarily feel that they have less chance to love what they do and be good at it. There's no difference on gender. Now, there is difference, as I said, on race and there's difference on. That's interesting. So, so, so Lise, if you're watching, you're wrong. Well, the data. All I would say is the data that we come back from, and we do this every month because we 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 need data in the world. We need reliable data about what people are really feeling because there's so much opinion. And in the case of gender, it's a tricky one because you know people get very worked up about it, and so we have to go talk to people, ask questions. It's a problem in our in our, in a culture where we're all so obsessed with discrimination, whether gender, sex, race. Yeah. But anytime we hit a hurdle, anytime we hit a wall, anytime we get a bad review at work, we say, well, they, they've done that because I'm black or I'm a woman or I'm gay or I'm white or I'm straight. I mean, how do we get beyond that? Well, it's one of those things where if you take something like racism, the more you focus on the racism as a problem, the bigger the problem gets. Weirdly, counterintuitive. Well, racism is a reality. I mean, it's oh, not an invention. No, no, no. Of course, but the, the, the things that you, to solve a problem, a, a problem is very rarely solved on its own terms. You've got to come at a problem like racism through a different angle. And funnily enough, the different angle you have to come at it with is a biological angle of va variation. Race is a social construction. That doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that the really interesting things about every person are not their race, their gender, their age, their sexual orientation, or their biography, because they share those things with millions of other people. That doesn't mean they're not relevant and that we shouldn't investigate them. We should. But, but 
which parts of you are just you? So the solution to prejudice is, is actually attending to people's psychological frailty. If you don't know who you are as an individual, by which I mean different than your brother and your sister or the people you grew up in the same house with, if no one's ever helped you know what is unique about you, which activities lift you up, what do you lean into? If no one's ever helped you with that, then you're psychologically frail, which means you join groups that look and think like you, and therefore you get your strength from those groups. Well, the moment you have an in-group, you need an out-group. And that's the foundation of prejudice. You, it's em, amity within, enmity without. Well, you could break that. You could break that cycle if you started talking much more deliberately and much earlier in school about individual difference psychology. Why are you different from your brother? Oprah had a sister called Patricia. Why is Patricia a social worker? Why is Oprah Oprah? Neil Armstrong had a brother, Dean Armstrong. Neil was on the moon. Dean Armstrong was a bank manager. Who's helping us know Rosemary Clooney had two, a nephew and a niece, George Clooney, but Ada Clooney. Ada's not an actress. She's an accountant specializing in payroll. Who's helping us know these individual differences? Right, between everyone has two people in them. Uh, perhaps even you, Marcus. Uh, on the one hand, you're a corporate trainer, the author of Love and Work. You work with ADP, but I'm guessing from your background in your room, you're a huge fan of the Smiths and of music. Um, yeah. I'm guessing that if you were super rich, you probably wouldn't be doing research into work. You'd probably be just listening to music or, or managing a band. Uh, does your work make you happy? What lessons can we learn from your life as Marcus Buckingham, corporate trainer, corporate writer, but also a guy clearly who has a rich life outside work? Well, so it's interesting, right? I, I built a software company. I sold it to ADP for over $100 million. I don't have to work at all. And yet I wake up every day, I'm doing this research around a subject that I think is important, humans relationship to something they spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week doing. At the moment, to your point, and to some of the people that you've quoted, it, it's not working. I mean, all the data we have say that only 16, 17% of people are fully engaged at work. Now, somebody may say, well, work shouldn't love you back. But actually, what an awful dispiriting place to go to every day if it doesn't fit you. So. So for me, I feel like it gives my life some sort of meaning and trajectory to wake up every day and try to try, because I'm not going to boil the ocean, but try to help us have a more uh, a clearer view of the relationship between an individual and their work. Work can be love expressed. I mean, it's love and work. It's not love and love. It's not narcissism. It's find out that which you love so that you can contribute it, so that you can learn more from the contribution about what you love. So it's like an infinite loop if we do it well. I'm working today, Andrew. I'm talking to you today because I'm I'm loving this. Like, I think this is a good thing for me to be doing. Well, me like, too. I mean, I, I this is a fun conversation. Well, it's, I'm, but I'm doing it just like you. You're doing what you're doing because there's something about it that's authentic. People watch you because you are in your zone a lot. Not 100%, but you're in your zone a lot. So work can be that way in any bloody job. And that's certainly true for me. Now, yeah, I've got lots of bits and pieces of me just like you have, but I still got to find some way to make a contribution. It's not all about pleasure-seeking narcissism. It's about, there are some activities that nourish me. We talk about work-life balance. Okay, nothing healthy in nature is balanced. Everything nature, healthy in nature is moving. Health is motion. Same is true for me. As Grace Slick said, no matter, the famous philosopher Grace Slick, no matter how comfortable your bed is, sooner or later you have to get out of it. So 
So you got to move through your days and get nourishment from the moving through the days through all domains of your life as a mother, as a father, a lover, a worker. So you don't have to get all your love from work. We shouldn't do that. That's no question. We shouldn't do that. But love is, I mean, work is a big domain. And so we have to move through it in a way that nourishes us. And that's what this book is about. It's trying to figure out a way to help people go. There is a way for you today without a manager, without a union, there's a way for you in any job to find the bits that nourish you so that you can keep moving. Maybe that leads you to quit your job and do something else. Maybe that leaves you to, to, to get promoted into a different role. Who knows where your next scavenger hunt for love is, but, but there's a way to do it right now. That's not idealistic. It's, it's very pragmatic. It's true for me. It's true for you. It's true for everybody.